Hebrews chapter 12, I might note here that this follows chapter 11. Real profound observation is that, isn't it? Chapter 11 is uh, the chapter uh, on faith, where you have the catalog of the faithful listed there. And it is with reference to that catalog that we read in verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, that great cloud of witnesses being those that are mentioned in the previous chapter, those that exercised faith, okay? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, and let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. 
And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I hope you were able to tell as we read that chapter that what was being referenced by Paul, who I take to be the author, was Moses at the occasion of Mount Sinai when the Lord drew near in a very majestic and powerful way and manifested himself to the people in such a way that they couldn't endure it and begged Moses uh, not to subject them to this kind of experience anymore. Uh, the cry actually went out from the people for a mediator. They pleaded with Moses, you go to God and get what he says to you, and then you bring that to us. Okay? Now, in connection with our series then, with our study on bridging the gap, I want to call your attention in particular to verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see God. Holiness, without which no man shall see God. There are given to us in scriptures certain virtues that you could call, I suppose, essential virtues to the Christian. I know every virtue is important and every virtue really can be likened to a fruit of the Spirit, but there are some that really stand out for their importance, and I would include holiness in that group for the simple reason that without it you don't see God, okay? Our text tells us, without holiness no man shall see the Lord. And such a statement then indicates to us that holiness then must be a very important virtue, indeed an essential virtue, for the Christian to manifest. In another verse that illustrates the same point, 
We're told in Matthew 5 and verse 20, this is Christ speaking now, the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So add righteousness to the list. Without it, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see, at once then, how essential both of these virtues are. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven with, without it. It takes holiness then to see the Lord, and it takes righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. I would add one more to the list, that which is found in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14, where we read, For we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. You see at once from this verse that love is also an essential Christian virtue, in particular, love for other Christians. Apart from such love, you really could not say that you pass from death unto life. Apart from love, you're still abiding in the realm of spiritual death. I think of that text whenever I meet those that profess to be Christians, and yet they can't seem to bring themselves ever to go to church anywhere. They seem much more comfortable with the people in the world than they do the people that gather in God's house that profess to be Christians. And no doubt, uh, the church is filled with hypocrites, but it's filled with, hopefully, sincere hypocrites that acknowledge their hypocrisy and recognize the need for uh, an increase in sanctification in their lives. These verses, then, taken together, convey to us the truth that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. When a person gains a saving interest in Christ, his life experiences transforming power. This is far different than regarding Christianity or salvation as simply something that may or may not affect a person's life. Uh, no, the gospel is the power of God, and true Christians know that power. Where gospel power is wrought, great changes follow in the heart and life of the believer. Old things really do pass away. All things really do become new. And the virtues that are mentioned in these texts I've cited, holiness, righteousness, and love, become the portion and practice of the believer. His life becomes devoted to the pursuit of these very things. Now, it is important for the Christian to understand these virtues in the light of the gospel. By failing to understand them in that light, the Christian becomes vulnerable to a works righteousness kind of thinking, which is contrary to the gospel. 
And if his focus changes so that he's viewing these virtues apart from the gospel, he may deceive himself into thinking that he's pursuing holiness when in fact all he's really doing is puffing himself up in pride with the result that rather than actual, actually pursuing holiness, he is in fact running away from holiness. I'm afraid that a great many Christians only know how to view holiness in a negative way. And I have to acknowledge here that this is uh, kind of the challenge to holiness. How do you think of it positively? We hardly can conceive of it except to describe it in terms of what it's not. Okay? And so there's a mindset that goes... um, I don't swear, I don't use profanity, and that's good for a holy person certainly won't swear, but a lot of unholy people won't swear either. I'm pretty sure I've shared with you the fact that the home I grew up in was not a Christian home. My parents never went to church. I didn't have any kind of religious upbringing, but rarely, if ever, that I ever hear my parents use profanity. Neither would they allow their children to use it. Were they holy? Were we holy? Well, no, in fact, we were lost, and lost souls are not holy. I suppose it could be argued that we could have been worse than we were, but that's still a far cry from saying that we were holy. If this virtue then is essential, and our text indicates that it is, holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, then the question we need to consider today is how do we pursue holiness in keeping with our study? How do we do holiness? Not just hear of it, not just learn about it. How do we pursue it? The word in the text, follow, is a word that could be translated pursue. It's used in the context sometimes of persecution and is most often translated by the word persecute. You think back to the chapter in Acts that describes the conversion of the Apostle Paul. In chapter 9 and verse 4, the risen and glorified Lord says to Paul, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The word persecute there is the same as the word follow in our text in Hebrews 12, 14. And so by thinking of the fervency and zeal that characterized Saul's intense pursuit of those that owned Jesus as their Messiah, you see an illustration of the zeal that ought to characterize our pursuit of holiness. Oh, that we may pursue it with the same kind of intense fervency that Paul exercised when he persecuted the church. But again, I raise the question, and it's a very important question, a question that, if not rightly answered, will lead the believer down a wrong path, his fervency notwithstanding. This is the question that I'd like to attempt to answer this morning. How does the Christian pursue holiness? 
How do we pursue it? How do we do it? Not just hear it, but do it. And I'll give a threefold answer to the question this morning. Like I say, we may take up this matter again. Very tempting after reading this chapter in Paul Tripp's book uh, to say to myself, I wonder if it could pass for me preaching if I just stood up here with that book and read it to you. <laughs> it might uh, accomplish more perhaps than what we'll do. Uh, Dr. Tripp actually lists nine points uh, under this. I'm not going to go into nine points, but I will probably take up another study in which I will summarize some of his points. But at any rate, my usual threefold answer today, consider with me first of all that in order to pursue holiness, the Christian must first understand what it is he's pursuing. Okay, what is it? What are we talking about? We have that chapter in Isaiah 6 where the Lord appears before Isaiah in the, the temple in heaven and we have the account of his train filling the temple and he's shining with resplendent brightness and the angels are singing holy, holy, holy. What does that mean practically? for us in terms of what we're to pursue. But we have to understand what exactly it is we're pursuing. I indicated a moment ago there's a common tendency to view it only in negative terms, in terms of what it's not, or in terms of what we don't do. Very easy to view holiness this way. And in a sense, I suppose it is necessary after all, we're sinners, sinners saved by grace, but sinners nevertheless, because even as Christians, we possess an old nature that has not yet been removed from us. So from the perspective of a sinner, holiness represents everything that he is not. This is why it's easy to describe it in terms of what it stands in contrast to. Holiness, you could say, is the opposite of sinfulness. I referred to the use of swearing or profanity a moment ago. Holiness is the opposite of that. Holiness is not using profanity. We could also say that holiness is not being unjustly angry. Some, probably many of you know what it is to have a quick temper or a short fuse on occasion. I remember a man I used to work for when we lived in the Chicago area. I worked in printing. The owner of that shop was an Italian Catholic. When something went wrong, when somebody made a mistake, it was never his approach to analyze what happened and constructively offer criticism with an aim toward correction and prevention from having the same mistake happen again. No, when something went wrong, he would see fit rather to explode and land, launch into a tirade against the person who made the mistake. He knew that I was a Christian and that I was in the ministry and that I was trying to plant a church at that time. And so I, I, I think, looking back on it, that he sort of designated me, I think, as his on-site priest. And he would come to me at times after one of his tirades 
and would say to me, I sinned, didn't I? We know that temper tantrums run contrary to holiness, and so we think of holiness as not having temper tantrums. And we know what it is to lust after things, to lust after worldly things, and to lust after unlawful things. You would hardly think it necessary for the Lord to include in the Ten Commandments the Tenth Commandment, which tells you, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And so holiness means not coveting. And you see here how I'm using negative descriptive words, the word not, to convey the idea of holiness. Indeed, when you think of holiness in comparison to the Ten Commandments, we're led to conclude that holiness means not doing a lot of things. Has it occurred to you that eight of the Ten Commandments are negative? Thou shalt not is the recurring phrase. You begin to see how easy it becomes then to reason that in order to be holy, I must say nothing, do nothing, think nothing, feel nothing. And the monastic mentality springs from viewing holiness this way. I must find a way to shut myself up and close myself off from everything that would lead me to think or speak or feel or do. And if I can su succeed in wrapping myself up with uh, the tape that I become sort of a mummy shut in a closet, then maybe I'm holy. Holiness, then, is viewed entirely in terms of self-denial. And this is what makes it so undesirable, not only to the sinner, but to anybody. Sinner or Christian. Nobody wants to be a mummy stuffed in the closet. And so holiness comes to be viewed almost as death itself, the only way I can think of it is in terms of what I am not and what I shouldn't do. Now, the pursuit of holiness certainly involves waging war against sin, okay? But that's only a part of pursuing holiness. And I would suggest to you it's not even the first part. The first part has to be in beholding God and beholding Christ. There's where we begin to get a positive idea of what it is. You look at verse 15 in chapter 12. Looking diligently, Paul writes, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Back up to verse 1 in chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This is what it is to begin to conceive of holiness in a positive light. And I hope that before this study is through, 
I hope I can uh, effectively communicate to you that there are actually two conflicting emotions, if you will, that come into play into the believer's life when it comes to holiness. There is a fearful aspect to it. We'll get more into that a little bit. But there's also an attractive aspect to it. And you have to be impacted by both perspectives. We must see holiness then as the dominant attribute of God. A.A. A. Hodge gives a very full yet concise description of holiness. Listen to what he writes. The holiness of God is not to be conceived uh, as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of his consummate perfection and total glory. It is his infinite moral perfection crowning his infinite intelligence and power Infinite moral perfection is the crown of the Godhead. Holiness is the total glory thus crowned. A dominant attribute of God. And so holiness then becomes the subject of the angel's worship. The very characteristic of God that's celebrated in heaven as we read of those angels in Isaiah chapter 6 crying unto one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We don't find them singing, do we? Powerful, powerful, powerful is the Lord of hosts. Or love, love, love is the Lord of hosts. No, the thing that they're singing of, the dominant attribute of God is his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holiness is that attribute of God that depicts really two things. It depicts his separateness from all of his creation, and it depicts his moral purity. We must think of it in terms of the brightness of his glory. And it's a brightness that is so great that those angels in Isaiah 6 must cover their faces for they cannot gaze fully upon God in his glory. When we see Christ transfigured in the mount, we behold him in the beauty of his holiness and the authors of the gospel struggle to find words to describe the brightness of his glory. His face did shine as the sun, one author writes. His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. His raiment was white and glistering, Luke tells us. The sun, the light, the snow, exceeding white, these are but dim reflections of what the disciples beheld when they saw Christ in his glory. And this brightness is the emblem of his purity. His moral purity and his divine majesty are the things that come to the forefront when we think of his holiness. It is his holiness then that sets God apart from all creation. And when we appreciate the separateness of God, we can begin to see that it must be the same thing that characterizes us as Christians. 
If we're to be holy, then there's got to be a sense in which we too are separated. And I don't mean separated in the sense that we're shut up and closed off to everything that's in the world. Holiness is not monasticism. It doesn't mean that we're cut off from everyone and everything. No, rather we're separated in the sense that we rise above the world. We manifest a joy that is unspeakable because it's a joy that is not of this world. It's the joy of our salvation. It's the knowledge that our infinitely holy God has made provision for the salvation of poor, guilty, lost, and defiled sinners. By the same token, our peace is a peace that rises above the world. And the world, therefore, cannot understand it. Peace I leave with you, the Lord said. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, Christ says in John's Gospel. And so it's a holy peace because it's something that is altogether different or separate from the world. And because it's such a peace, it's a peace that passes all understanding. It's a peace that gives the Christian stability, even in the midst of perplexity and the storms of life. It's the peace that comes through knowing we're justified. This infinitely holy and righteous God in his grace and wisdom has found a way to actually declare guilty sinners to be righteous He's made the way through Christ's atoning death for sinners to come into the very inner chamber of heaven and approach a throne of grace. We are separated from the world then, not in a monastic sense that views any use of the world as a form of defilement against holiness, but we're separated from the world in the sense that we're above it and we see beyond it. And we draw blessings from Christ that are greater than anything this world can offer. We refuse to live our lives in such a way as to suggest that our purpose and meaning and happiness in any way is tied down to the things of this world. We see that this world is passing. And in the context, in Hebrews 12, we see a day coming in which there will be a great shaking. You still have your Bibles open in Hebrews 12. Look with me at verse 26. Whose voice then shook the earth, with reference to Mount Sinai, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of those things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Here then is the meaning of holiness. We live in the light of Christ's salvation, and we look for a world to come where righteousness will reign. We recognize not only that this world is coming, 
but we recognize that there's a definite sense in which we are already subjects of this coming kingdom. And so we live now in the light of this kingdom to come. If we're to pursue holiness then, we must understand what it is and we must be able to view it not only in negative terms, but in positive terms of the brightness of Christ's glory. Well, let's move on and consider with me next that if we're to pursue holiness, the Christian must appreciate its importance. We have an idea now, I hope, of what it is. Let's consider for a moment how important the pursuit of it is. I placed holiness into a category of essential virtues. The Christian must have holiness. Our text tells us that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. The prophet Habakkuk tells us in Habakkuk 1 and verse 13. In a description of the new Jerusalem, the Apostle John tells us that there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth. Revelation 21, 27. Our text in Hebrews 12, verse 29, tells us that our God is a consuming fire. The only thing that can withstand the shaking and the fire that are depicted in these verses at the end of chapter 12 is holiness. The things that will remain, the things that will not be shaken, are the things that are holy. Anything with the least spot of defilement will be consumed. It will not remain. Holiness, then, indeed, is pretty important, isn't it? It's essential. God will have nothing to do with those that fail to manifest his most glorious attribute. The most compelling reason urged upon us for holiness is because our God is holy. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And would you note from that statement that holiness is to pertain to all manner of conversation. Now there's a King James word, okay? Conversation. It means conduct. Be holy in all manner of of conduct, which means then all manner of conduct means that this has to do with everything that you are involved in, whether it be your work or your recreation, your entertainment, your worship, your finances, etc., etc. You are to be holy with regard to all of it. Now, at this point, it might be tempting to think, holiness sure is a hard thing. How can I possibly enter into God's presence with such a high standard set before me? How can we possibly gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven, the new Jerusalem, when nothing is allowed in it that defiles? 
The only thing that we see from God's holiness is a brightness that blinds us and a moral purity that condemns us. God's holiness, you see, was revealed when God descended upon Mount Sinai. Hebrews 12 makes reference to that event when it describes in verse 18 the mount that might be touched, okay? That's Mount Sinai. That's the tangible mountain. That's the mountain where the Israelites stood at the base when God descended upon it. It's described here as the mount that burned with fire, the mount that engulfed with blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. They could not take it. They could not withstand it. And you see from these verses once again the idea of God being separate from his creation. He was unapproachable in his holiness. Not even a beast could touch the place that was marked off. And verse 21 adds something to the account from Exodus 19 that's actually not included in the narrative in Exodus. We're told in Hebrews 12 and verse 21, And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. You don't find that in the account in Exodus. But Paul knew it. And he states it here. And so we're faced with something of a dilemma. Holiness is required to enter God's presence. Holiness is required to see God. Holiness is required to gain entrance into the new Jerusalem. And yet holiness is, in a sense, a terrible thing to behold. I'm reminded of the radiant splendor of the angels that's found in the book of Revelation. On two occasions, you find the Apostle John so struck by their radiant splendor that he bows before them and would worship them. They, of course, don't allow this. They know that as glorious as they appear, there is yet a greater glory before which they must cover their faces. If angels which shine with such brightness must cover their faces before a thrice holy God, how can defiled sinners ever hope to see God? How can we ever hope to gain heaven? How can we ever expect anything other than the condemnation we deserve? And let me add here that the holiness of God demands our condemnation. God would defile himself to accept guilty sinners into his presence. Oh, it's no wonder the revelation of his holiness made Moses fear and quake. His holiness demands the condemnation, even of Moses. As great a man and as great a leader as he was, Moses was nevertheless a fallen child of Adam and therefore a sinner. And so we see the importance then of obtaining holiness. But when we think of the holiness that's required for seeing God and entering heaven, oh, it should make us heave a great sigh. 
How will we ever see God? How can we ever meet such an impossible requirement for heaven? We who stand in such contrast to holiness, we who best describe and understand holiness in terms of everything that we are not. Well, thank God this morning for the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26 when he said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We've considered then what it is we're pursuing when we pursue holiness. We've considered why it's important, indeed why it's essential to pursue holiness and not just know about it. Would you consider finally that the Christian must know how to pursue holiness in the right way? There is a way to pursue it. There's a wrong way and there is a right way. Hebrews 12 reveals to us an impossible way to pursue holiness as well as the right way to pursue it. The impossible way to pursue it is approach the mount that might be touched. This is Mount Sinai referred to, or referred to in verse 18. This is the mountain that magnifies the contrast between a holy God and a defiled sinner. Coming to this mount can only bring condemnation to the sinner. But would you notice that Paul writes in verse 22 that the Christian has come to a different mount. You are not coming to the mount that might be touched, he says, verse 18. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Here is mention of the new or heavenly Jerusalem. Didn't we just read from Revelation 21 that nothing that defiles can enter that city? We need to read on in Hebrews 12. In verse 23, we read that we've also come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And then note it in verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Here is how we acquire the holiness that's required for heaven through Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, on the grounds of the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. I love to think about it, and Dr. Cairns used to use this phrase, the speaking blood. This is the blood that is holy. This is the blood in which is found the perfect value and virtue of Christ's holy life. The life of the flesh is in the blood, we're told, Leviticus 17, 11. And so the blood represents the life of Christ, that life which was poured out to make atonement for our sins. It's called speaking blood. It speaks better things than that of Abel. Well, what does that blood say to a thrice holy God? It testifies, first of all, that Christ himself is holy and harmless, undefiled by sin, and perfect in every way. 
And then it testifies that the atonement has been made. And because atonement has been made, the penalty against sin has been executed, justice has been satisfied, it testifies further that believers have been purchased, they belong to God, He has redeemed them, they've been reconciled to Him. All that was owed by them has been paid for by the blood of Christ. The blood testifies that the demands of the law have been met by Christ. He fulfilled its precepts and he's paid its penalty. And so those that have been given to Christ are holy. You remember how I described holiness in my first point? It means separated from the world. Believers were separated from the world in eternity past when they were chosen by Christ. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own, Christ says. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. John 15, 19. And so the believer in Christ is holy in his election. Colossians 3, 12 says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Bows of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Do you see the thrust of the text? As the elect of God, you are holy and beloved. In the light of that fact, you're holy and beloved. You're exhorted to put on bows of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. In our pursuit of holiness, therefore... We must begin with the gospel truth that we are holy. This truth is emphasized, you know, by the title that is given to Christians again and again in the epistles. What are we called? Who are the epistles addressed to? They're addressed to the saints, to the saints that be at Corinth or what have you. You know what that word means, saint? It means holy one. The verb form of the word means to sanctify. Listen to this definition of one Greek lexicon for the word sanctify. It means to separate from profane things and dedicate to God. When Christ chose you out of the world, you were separated from profane things. When Christ paid the penalty for your sins, you became dedicated to God. And so the truth of the gospel is that you are holy, not that you must acquire holiness, but that you are holy. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says to them, chapter 1, verse 2, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place, call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And if you care to look up that verse, you'll notice that the words to be are in italics. In our authorized version, that means that the words were supplied by the translators to give a better sense of the original language. 
They're not part of the original. And so we could read the verse like this, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints, leaving out the to be. I think that the words our, trans, uh, our translator supplied give the right reading, but the point I want to make is that you're called to be saints because you are sanctified in Christ. You're called to be saints because in Christ you are saints. You are holy ones. And so we're holy by virtue of our election. We're holy by virtue of our union with Christ, sanctified or made holy, set apart in Christ Jesus. The preposition in depicts our union to Christ. And now all of a sudden, holiness is within our grasp because it's our portion in Christ. As surely as he is holy, we are holy in him. So how do we pursue holiness? Do we pursue it by seeing it first that we don't have it and we need to strive for it? If you pursue it that way, then you're coming to the mount that can be touched. And rather than gaining holiness, you'll be devoured by holiness. But when you come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and when you come to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel, or very simply, when you come to God by means of the gospel, then you begin with the recognition that by his grace and through his provision and on the grounds of his atoning death, you are holy, and now you pursue it because you possess it. A little bit, you know, like the book of Joshua, and I've always loved uh, the way Joshua illustrates this. The land was given to the Israelites. God owned it. It was his. It was his prerogative to give it to whoever he will, and he chose to give it to Israel. The land of Canaan, the promised land. Did that mean that uh, they could just stroll in and everybody who occupied the land would say, Oh, I understand, and I will vacate the land and yield it to you. Uh, not hardly. They had to fight for every inch of it, didn't they? They possessed it, and yet they still had to pursue it. It was theirs by promise, but they still had to fight for it. That's how we pursue holiness. And this is the mark of a man who knows he possesses it, He'll have the desire to pursue it. I love the way this is expressed in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, what promises? Well, there's the promise of sins forgiven. There's the promise of everlasting life. There's the promise of righteousness. There's the promise of heaven. Having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You remember that double perspective that I said earlier? Uh, holiness is a fearful thing, and yet holiness is an attractive thing. We do this study again next week. I 
uh, I hope I can place a stronger emphasis on the attraction of holiness. But that creates two simultaneous impacts on the believer's life. It is fearful, but it's attractive. Because it's fearful, I tremble. Because it's attractive, I rejoice. Reminds me of that text in Psalm 2, near the end, where we are to serve the Lord. Uh, oh, I'm going to botch it now when I try to quote it. But it makes reference to rejoicing with trembling. Boy, that's what separates the Christian's joy from the frivolousness of the world. Rejoice with trembling. Because holiness is a fearful thing, but holiness is an attractive thing. We learn the fear of God when we visit the mount that can be touched, when we see how far we fall short of the glory of God. Like Moses, we fear and quake. But when we come to Mount Zion and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, then our fear and trembling, you could say, is tempered into reverence and godly fear. We humbly bow down and adore our Savior as we behold him dying in our place. And from hearts that are filled with wonder and awe, we strive to be like him. We wage war against the sins that easily beset us in the strength of his love and grace. We interpret even his harsh dealings with us in the light of that love that will never fail. And in this way, then, we follow after holiness. And so I wondered this morning, dear folks, as we bring this meeting to a close, are you holy? Are you holy in Christ? Do you believe in your union with him? Have you entered into union with him by faith? If you have, then you're holy, and the proof of your holiness will not be seen in perfection. We're still far short of that, but your holiness will be seen in your pursuit of the very thing that by God's grace you possess. Oh, may God move our hearts then to be holy as he is holy, and may we pursue the right thing in the right way, and in the process, may our lives shine brightly for our Lord. I was seeing on Facebook this past week pictures that people were posting of that pastor, Mark Robinette, who tragically died in a fire, house fire, while trying to rescue two of his sons. All three of them perished and that awful tragedy. And I've seen various pictures that are posted of this man. You, you're familiar with him, though you may not know it. Uh, he's the author of that book that I distributed to many of you not long ago, Myanmar Gold. He's the author of that, called Home the Glory. When, when I see the pictures of this man, um, the thing that strikes me is he looks like a holy man of God. He looks like it really because uh, of a glow and a smile that his countenance conveys, even in the pictures you see of him. Oh, may God help us to be like that.
to be holy as he's holy. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we pray that thou wilt help us to see clearly with the eye of faith the glory of our Redeemer, who was altogether glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. May we be like him, O oh Lord, to the degree that we can in this sin-cursed world. We pray for the help of thy Spirit. We pray that thou wilt help us to think right and do right. And grant, O oh Lord, that in all manner of our conversation, we may be holy because of what we are and what we have in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.